If you will join me, please, in Habakkuk, the prophet of Habakkuk, chapter 1. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can find our text on page 785. This morning we'll be looking at verses 5 through 11 as we continue in our series through this book. The title of our sermon this morning is Watch and Be Amazed, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are Watch, Nature, and Chaldeans. Now, all of us have had times in our lives when one single piece of information has completely changed the way that we have felt or responded to a situation or to those around us almost instantly. I saw a video recently of a man who scratched off a lottery ticket and won $2 million. He instantly called his boss on the spot, quit his job in a less than appropriate manner, told his wife that he was leaving her, and told his best friend what he really thought about him very loudly, proclaiming that he didn't need anyone else now because he was rich. Little did he know his wife and supposed best friend were pranking him for his birthday. And before they could say anything, he went on a rampage. It is amazing what a large sum of money will do to reveal a person's true heart. On the other hand, many of us have been recipients of news that is really hard to receive. Miscarriage, cancer, tragic death of a loved one. These are life-changing things, and they come at us in single moments in time when just seconds before, minutes before, everything seemed normal. Everything seemed to be just like any other day. But news will change things instantly. Major battles of war have been fought and won because of a single piece of intelligence. We've gone, as people, all of us have experienced, going from down in the dumps to being extremely excited about something as something wonderful is revealed to us. I remember once watching a basketball game with someone uh, who will remain unnamed, and when the second half started, they were yelling at the player to go the other way because they were about to score on their own team by shooting the ball in the wrong basket, and so I quickly reminded them at halftime, everything switches, and the team now shoots on the other basket. And in that moment, their dismay, their disbelief in what was about to happen, their loud cheering and celebration commenced because this small piece of information was revealed. But we all know that perspective changes everything, doesn't it? It changes the way we think about things and the way that we see situations. A little bit of information can make a huge difference in how we feel and how we respond and what kind of outlook we have on life. This can certainly be said to be true of our salvation. At the most basic level, I once was blind, but now I see. It changes how I think. It changes how I see the world. It changes how I think about my life and how I treat and talk to others and how I think about death. Instantly, knowing that I am secure in Christ changes everything. Well, as we look at our text this morning, the Lord is going to respond to Habakkuk in a way that may seem somewhat unexpected. 
Remember last week we saw the prophet just pouring his heart out before God, praying to God. He's filled with questions. He's puzzled by all of the circumstances surrounding him. He's troubled by what he saw among the people. He's perplexed as to why God was allowing this and why he wasn't intervening. He was broken, he was dismayed, he couldn't figure out why God was seemingly so unwilling to bring about justice against the evildoers. He wanted God to bring correction to the sins of his own people. And while God will have more to say um, from these verses and beyond that we will look at this morning, and, and even though Habakkuk has more questions, we will see at least we will see here that God is dropping in the prophet's lap the key piece of information that will change everything. It will. It will take some time, but it will change how Habakkuk sees the entire situation, how he responds to the situation. It doesn't mean that he's immediately going to love what he hears. It's not that he's going to fully grasp all that he hears, but it will change everything and how he looks at everything from a completely different perspective, a perspective of a a fuller picture filled up with more of the facts. And as we walk through the text, our eyes are going to be opened right alongside Habakkuk's eyes to see what God does not always do in the way that we would expect him to do. And in fact, a lot of times he works in ways very different than what we expect. Now, if you'll recall, last week I identified that the book of Habakkuk begins with questions from the prophet in verses 1 through 4. And we saw that as Habakkuk looked around at the people of Judah, where he lived, his own countrymen, and he saw their sin, he saw their lack of concern for the things of God and their disregard for the law, and he saw the inevitable advance of the Chaldeans of Babylonia. They were coming They were coming after them. They had crushed Nineveh. They had already marched through the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were making their way, and he felt the weight of all of it, and he simply cried out to God, Why? Why, oh God, does this continue? Remember, he indicated that he had prayed for quite some time, and he got this sense that perhaps God isn't listening at all. And we left our prophet in a place of desperation, a place of despair, Remember, Habakkuk was praying, Lord, give me some light so I can see something of what's going on and make sense of all of it. And yet it seemed as though the Lord only continued to cast further darkness. And, and I had mentioned that the book follows a simple pattern. The prophet asks questions over several verses, and then the Lord responds with answers. That's going to happen one more time. We'll see questions from the prophet, and then the answers of God, and then the book ends with a psalm by Habakkuk. So in verses 5 through 11, we're looking at God's first response to the prophet and his initial round of questions, where he's going to give that one piece of information that will change everything. And so the first thing that we see in our text is in verse 5, and that is that God's ways are not our ways. Look at verse 5. It says, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, as we consider what God says, we're reminded right alongside Habakkuk 
of God's words in Isaiah 55, where God said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And now the Lord is going to go on to explain what those ways are. But before he gets there, he gives us some preparatory commands. Now, in the first part of verse 5, there are actually four imperatives here. There are four commands that the Lord is saying, and all of them kind of summed together are watch and be amazed. These are commands. Now, I don't intend to get into all the nitty-gritty of the grammar here, but it's important to note that the Lord is addressing not just Habakkuk, but this is, this is plural. He's talking to the people. He's talking to all of the people through the prophet. Remember, we said last week that Habakkuk is, is somewhat unique among the prophets because usually you have a prophet speaking to the people on behalf of God. But Habakkuk is a bit different because Habakkuk is speaking to God on behalf of the people. But now God responds in plural to all of the people, and he's telling them, watch and be amazed. Now, four imperatives in the first sentence. The Lord tells Habakkuk to look, to see, to wonder, and to be astounded. These are all commands. The tension is building as we read this text. The anticipation is increasing. Remember, Habakkuk has been completely laid low because of the violence, because of the evil he's seen all around him in the people of Judah. And the Lord responds saying, get your eyes up. Don't just be looking at the circumstances around you, but look out. See what's going on beyond your borders. My ways are bigger than yours, and just wait and see what's going on out there. Have you ever watched a movie with someone who has already seen it? And as you sat watching it with them, they were continually tapping you and saying, Watch this part. You got to see this part. Okay, I don't know what I was doing. I thought I was watching this part. And if, that, if you do that, just stop. Nobody likes that. Nobody needs your commentary along the way. Just let us watch the movie. But what are, what are we communicating in that? What are we saying in that? We're saying, I know the end of the story. I know something very important is going to happen. And if you miss this part, if you don't see what's going on here, you're going to miss something really important to understand the rest of the story. So pay attention. And in the same way, the Lord is saying to the people here, look, look now, pay attention, see what's going on, or you're going to miss something big and important. And so he's piling on these imperatives. He's saying, you have to pay attention here and now. Look out, see what's going on among the nations. It's part of the bigger story. And if you're going to understand the story, you're going to have to see beyond yourself and your own circumstances because I am much bigger than you and my ways are not your ways. This is some really humbling stuff. The Lord is reminding all of us that his purposes are far greater than one person or one nation. And we can even go as far as saying greater than the whole world, the nations of the world. God alone is the one that understands all of it. And if we would just lift our eyes and see even the slightest bit beyond our own circumstances and look to the nations and see what the Lord is up to, we will get a glimpse. And in that glimpse, we will be able to see the purposes of God for a single period of time can only be understood in light of eternity. And you and I know that as we look back at history. We know profoundly the significance 
of Christ's crucifixion, don't we? Now, if we were with the apostles, if we were with the disciples on that day, we would have been right alongside them feeling defeated and broken and confused. We would have been shocked by everything that was going on. We would have been going through all the things that he had said to us that we are wondering if now any of it is actually true. And yet, whenever they had these post-resurrection encounters with Jesus, it's as if he was telling them, hey guys, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than these circumstances right now. I will comfort you. I am with you. I understand your pain. I understand your heartbreak. I sympathize with you. But remember, my ways are eternal. And right here, what you're experiencing is part of a bigger picture, and this one thing is far more important than the pain and the confusion that you're feeling right now. Brothers and sisters, if we are to live our Christian lives sort of above the circumstances, in other words, if we're going to press on in our Christian lives and begin to live more faithfully, trusting God at every turn, we are going to have to set our eyes beyond right here and right now. We need to be looking beyond and see that the Lord's ways are not our ways. His ways are far greater than ours. And so, yes, our circumstances may be difficult. They may be trying. They may be the hardest thing we've ever had to walk through so far in life. But we have to realize that even though we may not like what we see at first, what we can know is that the Lord is at work And he is wise, and he is good, and he is faithful. So come what may, I can press on because he is in control. He is in control. And so he says, look, watch, be amazed. I'm doing a great thing, and you have to pay attention. These other two imperatives, he says, to wonder and to be astounded. Literally, this says, be amazed, amazed. Both words really mean the same thing, but the Lord is adding words for emphasis. The anticipation and the tension here is building even more. And you're left asking the question. You read the verse, and you say, for what? What am I to pay attention to? What am I to be amazed at? What's the focus? Now, remember back in the opening verses we looked at last week, Habakkuk was saying, Lord, when will you do something? Are you going to do anything? And so here's God telling the prophet, okay, I'm answering you now. But I want to tell you up front to pay attention and hold on to your seat because I'm going to answer in a way that isn't what you expect. And and it's, it's not necessarily what you want, but I'm answering you. And I'm answering your question as a response to the evil that you see and that I see. And he emphasizes in verse 5, he says, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, it's not like it's a big secret to the Israelites that God was promising for quite some time that he would not endure with evil forever. They knew that. There had been many prophecies, and there had been many examples of God's judgment upon the people for their wickedness, for their rejection of God as their covenant father, but they're stubborn. They're hard-hearted. They're so fixed on thinking they're safe and that they'll be okay that they they don't even really pay attention. They have nothing to worry about because God has always protected them. They have nothing to worry about because they're God's people. But God's saying, pay attention. You're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe what I am going to do. In fact, what I'm going to tell you I'm going to do 
You people are not going to believe it at all, but I'm telling it to you. In your day, that is going to happen. I'm going to do it, so pay attention. John Calvin wrote, The execution of that which they regarded as a fable was near at hand. They didn't believe it, but it was coming. For years, the Israelites had rejected the prophets. They were ridiculed, they were despised, they were ignored, they were thought to be storytellers. Jesus even alludes to this as he's talking to the Pharisees. But, but nothing the prophets said was unfinished. Here, God promises they will see it all come to pass. And the Apostle Paul actually quotes this in, in Acts chapter 13 when he was preaching in the synagogue to the Jews. Paul, as he always did, offered Christ to the Jews. And they listened, and he noticed that as they listened, they listened with contempt. And so he quoted these very words. He's applying them to that situation. Just as God had threatened among his people by the prophet Habakkuk, so he was going to do in their day. And he would not continue to put up with their rejections of Christ forever. And of course, shortly thereafter, in A.D. 70, was the fall of Jerusalem. And that's what Paul was alluding to. But what about us, brothers and sisters? What do we find in our own lives that we are not completely willing to deal with in the ways that we ought because there are no immediate effects that we can see of our sins? So we just assume that everything is going to go on without notice, without notice by other people, without notice by God, perhaps. That's how sin so often works in our hearts, isn't it? Perhaps at first we're reluctant to do something. We, we feel guilt in our conscience, but we do whatever it is, and then we realize, hmm, there really weren't any consequences to that. So next time, it's going to be a little bit easier, and then it's a little bit easier and a little bit easier. And in time, we wonder, God probably just doesn't really care about this, actually. I'm just going to keep doing this because there don't seem to be any consequences at all. But you and I both know, because we've seen it in our own lives, we've seen it in the lives of other people, we've seen it in the lives of very prominent people, that the Lord does not allow us to continue on forever. It is not in His nature to do so. He is just. He is holy. He is righteous. In fact, for His people, He will often bring about a devastating revelation of our sin to bring us once again to the end of ourselves that we might turn to live upon Him instead of living upon ourselves, living upon our own righteousness, living upon common grace and abusing the gifts of God. Do you have unrepentant sin? Do you have persistent sin in your life? Beware. It will not go unnoticed forever. The judgment of the Lord is coming, and it will not be comfortable. The call for you, as it always was with the prophets, is to repent and turn from your sin, that you might walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus. Now, some of you are here this morning, you are our friends, and you do not believe in Christ at all. You go on in your life rejecting God and assuming that in the end it's all just going to work out. After all, you've gotten this far without paying much attention to the Lord. You try to keep your nose clean perhaps. You do what you perceive to be good deeds here and there. You're even honest when you do your taxes. So what's the big deal? In the end, you assume God is just going to say, ah, you know what? 
You didn't submit yourself to me in my word, but I like you anyway. So come on in. You're good. Now, friends, I want you to know that in no way will your sin go unpunished. The Lord will do what you have very likely been told and yet do not believe. But I tell you again today, every sin ever committed will face judgment. Either we pay for the judgment or we pay the penalty of our sin in judgment forever, eternally, in hell. Or our sins were paid on the cross in Jesus Christ. Every single sin ever committed by every single person will face the penalty that it is due, either by us individually or by Christ on our behalf. And you may be in complete disbelief, but as the Lord says, he says to you, look and see, wonder and be astounded because I'm going to do something that you will not believe even though you have been told. Friends, God's ways are not our ways and our only hope of escaping sure judgment is Christ. Will you look to Christ that you might live? Well, what is it that God is going to do with the Israelites? He's telling them to pay attention. He's going to do something big. And we see in our second point this morning, in verses 6 through 10, that God is always at work to bring about his purposes, and everything is at his disposal. Look at verse 6. It says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Now, it's very unlikely that the weight of what the Lord is saying right here will land on us in the way that it did Habakkuk and the people when they first heard it. But I assure you, there was shock, there was disbelief, there was even greater confusion in some ways. So let me provide us a more relatable example. Behold, Americans, I am raising up ISIS that angry and hostile group of people to come into your neighborhoods, to come into your streets, to come into your stores and your schools and your homes, and to take them for themselves and burn all the rest of it to the ground. They are dreaded and they are fearsome and their only concern is themselves. They have a thirst for blood and they will commit the most heinous, the most atrocious acts imaginable to every man, every woman, every child. They will hate you for your way of life, and they will be especially brutal to all of those who call themselves Christian. Their only objective is to take over, and their means of doing so is violence. They laugh in the face of authority, and they have no fear of dying for their cause. Does that change things a little bit? The Chaldeans were the ISIS, or the Boko Haram, or the Al-Qaeda of Habakkuk's day. They were terrorists, so you can surely imagine just how shocking this pronouncement was, because what is God saying? 
God's not saying this is what they're going to do and I'm not going to stop it. No, look at verse 6 again. He says, for behold, I am raising them up. I'm doing this. This is me bringing judgment to all of you. You want your answer, Habakkuk? Pay attention. Here it is. You're not going to like it. You're not going to believe it. But I will use those Chaldeans to sweep across Judah and inflict great judgment. This is what you will see. This is the game changer. This is that one piece of information that changes everything for Habakkuk. Well, Habakkuk won't be able to accuse God of neglecting justice anymore. But you see, everything is at God's disposal. Even a ruthless, enemy, evil force that advances against his covenant people. And evil they are. Look at this description. It spans over six verses. It says they're bitter or cruel and inhumane. And they're hasty, they're rash, inconsiderate, easy to make angry. It's a nation that marches through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. In other words, everywhere they go, they're destroying, they're taking, and not just property but people. They're either killing them or they're keeping them as slaves. Verse 7 says they are dreaded and fearsome. In other words, they instill fear and, and dread and terror in everyone they encounter. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Who is going to tell them what to do? They stand before no court but their own. They are a law unto themselves. They set their own minds on how they are going to treat others, which for them means violence and terrorism. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle or a vulture, swift to devour. The army is fast. It, It gets in, it does its evil work, and it gets out. They are like the wild animals of prey. They're eager to attack. They're eager to plunder and to kill. And then they slip away, dragging the carcasses of their kill along with them to finish them off. The horses were like anything the people of Judah had ever seen. They were fast. They were, they were ready to run and to dominate the enemy. The sense that's giving here is that you have this cavalry of horses and all of the riders, and as they plow through the city, the people are intimidated by the horses, and they fly like eagles. They're going so fast, and the men on the backs of those horses are killing and maiming everyone along the way, and the horses are trampling them as they fall to the ground. Verse 9, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. In other words, they have their faces set on destruction. Their heads are straight. They're not looking around. They're looking straight ahead at their target, and they will gather up so many captives. They will take so many slaves that they will be numbered like grains of sand. Verse 10, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. There is no authority that will get in their way. And if the king and the government of a city could stand in the way of the army, what hope? They, they can't do that. So what hope would there be for the common citizen? It says they laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. There wasn't a wall, there wasn't a fortress that intimidated the Chaldeans. With very little effort, they were able to break down all opposition and claim all of the spoils of a city for themselves. Now, at this point, there should be very little question in our minds as to why God told the people through Habakkuk, you are not going to believe this. 
Because in the midst of all of this description, we have to remember once again what's going on. We have to remember that the Lord says at the beginning of verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. All of these things I've described, all of the way the Chaldeans show themselves to be evil, evil and fierce, I am raising them up to bring them against you in your day. And it's very easy for us to question that, isn't it? In fact, we'll see next week, that's exactly what Habakkuk does. He's confused. What do you mean? What do you mean you raise them up? But so often, we want to prescribe how God should answer our prayers, don't we? And yet, sometimes, God's prescription in the things that we're praying about is that they're going to become worse before they ever get better. You know, we want to assume that we know how God is going to respond when we pray, and amazingly, our assumption is so often that it will be comfy and cozy for us while evildoers are the ones who receive the brunt of justice. But shall our sins never meet consequences? Now, as Christians, we realize our sins are forgiven. They are completely, totally forgiven. But that doesn't mean that some of our sins don't have lasting consequences. It doesn't mean that there aren't ramifications for what we've done. No matter how honest we are, no matter how repentant we are, no matter the fact that, that we are truly forgiven, there still are consequences. That's why it's sometimes hard for us to actually realize that we are forgiven because we're still dealing with consequences. But even though in the eyes of God the penalty of the guilt of our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west, but we still may have to deal with consequences that we have to abide with in this life. But here's what we can't miss in all of this. We cannot miss the true justice of God's response. The Lord's description of the Babylonians was a direct response to the evil that Habakkuk described in his initial prayer that we saw in verses 2, 3, and 4. In verse 6, the Babylonians are said to take property that's not theirs. If you know the history of what was going on in Judah, you understand that was the same thing that the upper class of people in Judah were doing. In verse 7, the Chaldeans are said to be deciding for themselves what is right. But what were the people of Judah doing? They, they were showing no regard for God's principles of justice. They settled things on their own. In verse 9, it says they come ready to do violence. And the, same, the sa very same words appear back in verses 2 and 3 to describe the unjust oppressors in Judah. So you see, God's plans were not just some arbitrary plans. This wasn't some random army he chose to ri rise up and bring against them. The description of what they were and what they were going to do was a direct response to the sins of Judah. It was a direct response to real sin, and so it was real justice. It was entirely appropriate that the violent of Judah were, dis were destined to die a violent death at the hands of the Babylonians. That's just. Whether we like it or not, that's just. But let's look at our final point this morning, verse 11. And we see the only God the wicked worship is themselves, and they stand Condemned. Look at verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, verse 11 is actually very difficult to interpret. And if you look at more than one version of the English Bible, you will see how that difficulty comes out. Because if you're reading anything other than the ESV right now, you see it's worded very differently. 
all of the English versions interpret this in different ways. But when it's all said and done, I think it's safe that we draw out some general principles that seem to come through in every one of the translations. It's this. They will be puffed up. They will continue to battle on. They will sin. They will worship themselves. But they will be held responsible. That's the general sense that verse 11 is taking in all of the translational nuances to consider. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It seems almost unbelievable, and it's somewhat ironic, that the instrument that God uses to judge his own people now exalts itself to the level of deity. They are so evil, they are so self-focused, that they regard themselves as being completely incapable of doing any wrong whatsoever. Why? Because they, they have a law of their own making. They acknowledge no accountability, they seek no repentance, they offer no reparations for their evil deeds. But you see, even still, Habakkuk and those who are the faithful remnant of Judah alongside him get a, get a glimpse, they get a small glimpse here of some reprieve that is to come. They're scared now, they're fearful, the confusion may be increased even more and not subsiding, but they do get a glimpse here that something helpful will come. Now, the Chaldeans are going to do what God says they're going to do. They will inflict great pain. They will inflict great suffering upon Judah, and they will take many of the people captive, leaving the others for dead, but they will be held responsible. They will, as our text says, become guilty. Literally, that means they will be held liable for their deeds. So the progression here has been Habakkuk saying, Lord, I am sick of all of this. Will you do something? And God says, I'm sick of it too. I will bring justice. But naturally, we don't like God's response. We're quick to say, we want justice. But then when God prescribes what justice looks like, we say, no, 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 not that kind of justice. We just wanted you to fix the problem, but we didn't want you to involve us. We just wanted it, things to get better, but we didn't want to have to be caught up in the middle of it because we seem to have some sense in our minds that we don't deserve that judgment ourselves. It's like we want to wash our hands of it all and just hand it off to God and have nothing to do with it. But the reason we so readily disapprove of God's justice and assume that we are better than the other people is because we're guilty too. We're guilty in our self-righteousness. We're guilty in our pride. Brothers and sisters, you and I are far more like the Chaldeans than we are like God. And Habakkuk and the people of Judah were far more like the Chaldeans than they are like God. But we all tend to want to rate things from bad to worse to the worst. You could throw worser in there somewhere. But when it comes to our assessment of ourselves and our own sins compared to others, it may be bad, but it's not the worst. But all sin, all sin is an affront to God. All sin is an effort to tell God that my ways are better than your ways. My wisdom is higher than your wisdom. I will decide for me what I am going to do because I know better. That's what we say to God every time we sin. 
And there's only one right response to that, and it's repentance on our part. And it's just that God would judge. And we can repent knowing that humility and brokenness before the Lord is the right posture to take. It is the right place for us to be because the proud and the haughty will not stand forever. But, but we have hope. We have hope in the midst of sin and suffering. We have hope in the midst of the consequences of all of this, in the midst of evil and injustice that surrounds us. Not just our sins, but the sins of others, the sins of others that come and bear consequences in our own lives. We have hope. Our hope's not just in this world, but it's, it's right here in my heart because Jesus has entered into all of it, taking upon himself human flesh to not only live in the midst of it, but to defeat it all on our behalf. To live a life that is not deserving of judgment so that he could be judged for us. All of the beating, all of the scorn, all of the rage, all of the horrific hours on the cross, and most excruciatingly, the separation of the Son from the Father for the only time in all of eternity, all of it was the just penalty for our sin, and he took it for us. And one hour on the cross for Jesus was far worse than the life of eternity that a sinner spends in hell. So no matter what may come against us, no matter what ISIS may bring our way, we can rest in knowing that in Christ we are secure. And justice for our sins has ultimately been paid already. And we can now walk in true righteousness before the Lord because we are safe and we are free to not live in bondage to sin and death. And friend, if you are not in Christ... You cannot be ignorant of the fact that the proud and idolatrous will come to a woeful end, even though there may be some enjoyment, even though you may enjoy some success and prosperity for a season in this life. All who are proud, all who are boastful, and whose God is themselves will perish in judgment. You going to turn on the news tonight and hear about the Chaldeans and how great they are? Are we going to hear about their great triumphs and prosperity today? They don't exist anymore. The proud were taken down, and the proud will continue to be taken down. And this serves as a warning to all of us. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith that you might live. He's not going to turn us away. If you're not in Christ, he will not turn you away. He will not cast you out. God loves the humble God gives a refuge to the weary. Come to the end of yourselves that you might live upon him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Your word that not only informs us of what you have done and what has been done throughout history, but your word that instructs us, your word that warns us, your word that brings us to examine our own hearts, to examine our own ways and to see that all that you have done throughout history is to tell a story, to tell the story of our deserving judgment 
because of the sin in our lives, because of the, pri- uh, the, pr- the, the pride that's bound up in our hearts. And yet, even though we are deserving of judgment, that you have made a way for us to ultimately, eternally escape that judgment in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we recognize that we will face consequences for sinful actions on this earth, our own sinful actions, the sinful actions of others. We recognize, O oh God, that we will face things that we will question. And we, like the prophet, will ask you, why? And sometimes you will give an answer that we don't understand, that we may not like. But may it be that you strengthen all of us in our faith and in our hope in you to know that come what may, we know that you are sure and true in your promises, that you are with us even to the end of the age. And so no matter what comes our way, we know that what you do is right and what you do is wise and what you do will be far greater than anything we could hope or imagine. Help us, O God, to hope in you that we might know life eternal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.